Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of the Bellip Sports Media Network. Hey everybody, I'm Ed Hand here to uh, start our series uh, on all the other teams in baseball. We're co- trying to cover 30 teams uh, before opening day. Um, so thanks for joining me on this week's episode 213 of the Pesky Report brought to you by Belly Up Sports. I'm joined uh, first by my co-host Brandon Brewer. How are you doing today, Brandon? Hey, I'm doing great, Ed. Thanks for uh, having me on with you. And I'm also joined uh, representing the Miami, sorry, I almost called it the Florida Marlins, the Miami Marlins, uh, Eli Sussman. How are you doing today, Eli? Doing great. So if I understand this, I'm betting leadoff in this 30 series. You're batting leadoff. One one out of hopefully 30. (laughs) Yeah, it's either either a good thing or a bad thing. Either way, uh, always excited to talk about this team. We're still... I think as we're recording this, we're like right leaving that spring training honeymoon because when everybody reports the camp, all the vibes are good on there's so much positivity. And then the injuries trickle out, the flaws in your team start trickle out. And I know across baseball the last couple of days finally being brought back down to reality. So this is a this is a busy time. But as I said, I'm very happy to take some time to go over all things Marlins with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before we go into all of that, um, how, it looked like on your on your Twitter profile, you're from uh, New York. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I'm from New York. Um, I went down to Miami for school and University of Miami. Stayed down there for a couple of years. Start joined Fist Stripes when I was down there, but then moved back up here to New York. And uh, I've been running the site for about five years. I do it from New York, but most of my staff is actually in Jupiter right now. I, I have two of my, as we record this, heading into Marlins Red Sox game. I have a couple of my staff in the press box covering that game. Uh, so remotely running uh, what I think is a, I'm, I'm pretty proud is what the Marlins coverage that we do on fish drives all year round, every single day, all levels of the organization. Uh, but I myself, yeah, I'm up here with the snow that I just got earlier today. It is, um, and I'm actually, oh, I'm going down to spring training myself 
next week, soon after we record this. I'll be down there for some firsthand observations. Nice. So you get to escape the uh, the frigid cold that randomly decided to show up in uh, late February after a relatively warm winter. But uh, so did you just become a Marlins fan just by proximity of being down there or had did you grow up um, a Yankee or a Mets fan? No, I grew up a Yankees fan. I would say, yeah, basically by proximity. By the time I was college age, I'd, I'd outgrown any sort of um, original fandom and sort of by proximity. I just got interested, really curious about the organization. And I think even being close to it, it doesn't get any less weird. It is one of the weirder sports franchises that we have through now 30 years of existence. And it's more bad than good, but yet at the very peak, you have a couple of World Series championships. And all things considered, it is just a very unique uh, franchise. And uh, I've, I've learned to take a special bit of pride in understanding it and relating to the very unique experience that those fans go through. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Eli, but the Marlins are one of the, if not the only team in Major League Baseball that are undefeated in in postseason series. Is that correct? It was. It was until 2020 because when they oh, made it that's in that's right. It doesn't count. They, they won yeah, their that, first wild card series, then they lost to the Braves in the That's right. I, for, I forgot that you guys made it that year. Yeah. Yeah, there, was there was mixed feelings. There was mixed feelings about making it to the playoffs and actually not getting through because of that. Fact, people really took. Uh, they were hanging on to that one special thing that the franchise yeah. had on Yeah, that that was a pretty unique stat, I guess. Yeah, I have a very vivid recollection of the 2003 Marlins and the Red Sox beating them like 25 to six or something like that. They batted around the order twice in the first inning, and the Marlins went on to win the World Series that year, uh, which. I don't know if that defines the Marlins' experience, but it was kind of a funny thing that happened that year. Yeah, that is um, that was the record for runs allowed by the Marlins until just a couple of years ago in 2020. They allowed a 29 spot to the Braves during what ended up being a playoff season for them. But yeah, that particular box score is uh, kind of ingrained in my head. We do a whole lot of trivia shows at Fist Stripes, and that's one particular record that comes up a lot. Back in 03. I mean, my takeaway is that if somebody like really demolishes the Marlins in whatever season it is, watch out because they're a playoff team. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, there have been a lot of Red Sox moves this season, not a ton of Marlins moves by comparison, but there was one between both of them that happened. That was uh, a trade between. Uh, the two for relievers, they swapped uh, Matt Barnes from the Red Sox went over in exchange for uh, lefty reliever Richard Blyer. Or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. If it's Blyer or Blyer, I got it. Yeah, wrong. But uh, what can you tell us about about Blyer? He had been with the organization almost three full years, so he was acquired. You'll remember in 2020, the Marlins were the first team to undergo a COVID outbreak, and Blyer was one of the guys they brought in. They had a week of their games postponed, and they just scrambled to replace all the players that had tested positive. Blyer was one of the ones that got in a trade from the Orioles. And I think you'd have to say most of his three seasons were successful. He's a Miami native. He grew up in Miami Beach. So he was he was happy. He was a good presence in the clubhouse. He's a very clever guy. He has a, that typical reliever attitude. Um, and he had this history before coming to the Marlins of overperforming his peripheral stats where because he induced so many ground balls because he kept the ball in the ballpark so well 
like he had it all together and like routinely he's putting up sub three ERAs every year. And that for the most part continued, um, but he's coming off what was relatively disappointing in 2022. He was expected to pitch in maybe not high leverage, but a lot of medium leverage roles. And he was going to be trusted in a wide variety of situations. He got off to a bad start. He was just getting hit a lot harder than he'd ever been hit before, or at least during his Marlins tenure. And so when you look at the numbers at the end of the year, um, they look all right. From run prevention standpoint, he was pretty close to where he had been. Um, excellent control. And I think even more so last year than most years of his career. It's just that one particular thing he did poorly last year was with inherited base runners. He was the guy that was trusted with those important situations. It's not reflected in his ERA, but he'd be brought in a lot with runners on base. And in 2022, it was a really big mess in those situations. So um, even though like the overall numbers look all right, like he was, I understand why the team was kind of willing to part with him because this is a bullpen that just didn't have a whole lot of swing and miss in it. And that's kind of what they were thinking in this trade, even if Barnes is not necessarily better. And if they don't know for sure, he himself has some question marks coming into 2023. They thought Barnes was a better fit, somebody with a higher upside. All, all things considered, they, they picked up Blyer for some Dominican summer league player who was way down on, wasn't even anywhere near their prospect list. They barely gave up anything to get him. I think all things considered, it was a successful tenor. But um, when you talk about, their composition of their roster moving forward while he still had a little bit of value left. Um, this is the creative move that they made that, um, that I think could be a win-win for both teams. What's the general perception of Barnes in, uh, in Miami? Um, well, he's just seems really driven to get back to who he was for the better part of 2018, 19, 2021. Um, there's a lot of excitement about him. This is a team that for less handful of years really for even longer than that they've really struggled to find a consistent closer for any length of period he's somebody that at least has that potential maybe um they don't seem to be going in that direction um really they're going to be using they're going to be very matchup based um they're going to have an inner circle of trust with a few different relievers who can miss bats if they're in the right matchups and so the idea is that he's going to be one of their high leverage guys along with AJ Puck along with Dylan Floro, and we'll see who else maybe sneaks into that equation. Uh, they think he's going to be better than he was for a lot of the 2022 season. Uh, the most important thing is going to be throwing strikes and not being efficient and not giving away free base runners. Uh, I mean, that's uh, in, in speaking to Barnes, we, he's had a couple of media availabilities since the trade, and it's he's very self aware of exactly who he is as a player, what went wrong and how he thinks he could get back on track so that there's optimism that he could. And if all things go right, he does have that club option for 2024 to keep around. If he does prove to be an elite reliever, once again, um, I, I think the reality is that this is a team coming back off this off season. We saw relievers in free agency get some pretty big salaries. Um, I mean, beginning with Edwin Diaz, but even further down a little bit, and ideally, the Marlins would have wanted to sign those guys without giving up anything in return. And I think they realized that they just didn't feel that was efficient enough, that they weren't comfortable with the prices those relievers were making free agency. So that's what led them pretty deep into the offseason to make this creative pivot and to get somebody that has 
kind of similar upside, but obviously it's a shorter term commitment. The Red Sox are paying most of Barnes's salary for 2023. Uh, so this was not plan A. I'll just say that. Um, it seemed like they waited till late the offseason to make most of the, their uh, their moves because uh, you mentioned A.J. Puck. Um, that was J.J. Bladé for uh, A.J. Puck even up, right? And Bladé was a was the fourth pick in the country out of Vanderbilt, if I'm uh, if I'm not mistaken. So what what happened with him that they decided to to move on from him? Oh, um, man, he just really never looked like the guy he was supposed to be coming out of the draft. I remember that I was pretty on board with the decision to take him where they did. He was coming off an amazing junior year at Vanderbilt, where he was essentially the best hitter in the country uh, at that point. And ever since he went to pro ball, um, gradually he made certain adjustments that just didn't seem conducive to success. I mean, this is an easy cop out. I'm sure he was one of the players that was hurt by COVID and the fact that the 2020 minor league season was postponed, that would have been his first full year in pro ball, and he didn't get those reps. So that was costly. But he just gradually transformed in, from a well-rounded hitter into one that was had a very particular goal to pull fly balls, to be pull happy, to lean more into his power than in his hit tool. Um, particularly entering 2022, he added a whole lot of muscle that I didn't think he needed to add. He was somebody coming into pro ball that was already filled out, but he took that to more of an extreme level. So there were times in the minors where it looked all right, or at least the results looked okay. Um, I think they just miscalculated um, what his upside was. Like the He's just not particularly athletic, he, he, even though as much as he took steps on his own to get stronger, um, some of that the, that natural ability wasn't really there. They tried experimenting with him in center field, which was not supposed to be part of the plan at all when he was a prospect. He was supposed to be corner outfield in particular. Um, and I, after being traded, he's been pretty upfront that like he, he feels like the organization didn't put him in the best opportunity to succeed, that they gave him mixed messages about what he should do to get better. So I, I think it falls on everybody involved. Um, and honestly, if you just look at this organization's track record the last few years, they've struggled to get any of their young hitters to reach their potential. And so when you see that larger trend, it, this seems to be part of that trend of just not quite understanding, not having a very clear vision about how a player could reach his potential. And so you just fast forward to today, he was, even though we debuted last year, it went really poorly and OPS below 600 he just could not catch up to major league velocity in the zone, um, which is really concerning. I don't know what adjustment you make if you you just don't have the bat speed to get to those balls. And he was entering this year. He just did not have a clear spot on their opening day roster. Forget a starting spot. He just didn't have any role to play. And after spending so much of last year in AAA, the decision was either have him wait for an injury to pop up um, and his value to go down even more or to salvage something out of this and the way that they did that is they acquire Puck, who a lot of the same boxes as Matt Barnes, except he actually is coming off an even more promising year. He is a little bit younger. He himself is a former early first-round draft pick, so he has that pedigree. And they were looking for, even though they feel – we'll get into it, I'm sure. They feel pretty good about their starting rotation depth and all their options there. But the bullpen was somewhat of an issue last year, and they felt that Puck – 
is somebody that could raise their ceiling a little bit for that unit and pitch important innings for that. So similar to uh, the Blyer and Barnes trade, this was a one a deal that I felt pretty reasonable about for a team that is focused on being more competitive this year than they have been the last couple. Um, this is one of those incremental moves that um, I think pushes them in the right direction, even though it's, you know, it's unfortunate that they couldn't nail that draft pick the way they wanted to. At least they're kind of facing reality and making an adjustment based off of, you know, the reality of the situation. Yeah. Selling him while there's still some value there. Um, and it, it, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned they haven't really had much of a problem developing pitching, but hitting has really been the issue with the Marlins and the Red Sox kind of have the opposite problem where they haven't had a hard time developing hitters. The last truly great pitcher they had was that they um, just through their own farm system was John Lester um, and who retired recently. So it's been a hot minute there. Um, there was some talk earlier, some rumors, and, you know, there were a million rumors for both teams throughout this whole offseason. Um, but there was a lot of talk that seemed to be getting some action. There was actually some smoke to it about Edward Cabrera um, and him potentially being a fit with the Red Sox. They were interested in him, but the Marlins wanted, like, a Tristan Cassis-type return. They ended up getting their quality hitter for Pablo Lopez and some prospects from uh, the Twins in um, Arise. But what what can you tell us about Edward Cabrera that made them value him more than somebody like Lopez? He is a fascinating player. Um, there was a little window, I guess you'd probably say two years ago, where he was gaining steam as the very best prospect in the entire organization. Uh, he's one of the few truly homegrown players that they've nurtured all the way through. He was signed internationally way back in 2015, some somewhere around there and steadily brought along. He's had injury issues almost every step of the way. Um, that's kind of, that's the main negative to throw out there that he's not alone, but that is um, more so than the typical pitcher. He's been, his workload has been limited by various injuries along the way. Uh, he's always had a great fastball. Like he was hitting triple digits as a teenager and he still has the potential to do that as well. Um, but he has just gradually expanded his pitch mix and he has improved those secondary pitches. Um, and the one in particular that sticks out is his changeup. He made some news last year when he threw the hardest changeup ever recorded in the majors. It was like 96 miles per hour, a changeup, not the fastball. That's a changeup. Jesus Christ. <laughs> At this point, he's got a, an easy four pitch mix and he's even dabbled with adding a second fastball, like a, a two seamer. Um, it, it's a deep pitch mix. And when he's on, he's amazing. There were stretches this past year um, where he debuted in 2021 and he struggled, but he this past season, he really took strides forward um, using all of his pitches, uh, getting in more favorable accounts and just getting so much weak contact that there are pretty clear parallels between him and Sandy Alcantara that get people very excited. Um, I don't think it's a fair expectation to put on him, but it's, he has a check so many of the boxes you want from a starting pitcher, uh, except for the durability part of it. And also except for the commands part of it. So he is a player that he's kind of in that. There's a lot of amazing starting pitchers that are in that same spot where um, they, they can't command pinpoint any of their pitches the way they want to. And with him, he's kind of missing that fastball command. He really can't put his fastball where he wants to. And that tends to lead to more walks than you would like. But his stuff is so amazing, and he has so many different pitches he could go to that it really doesn't matter if he's on his game. Um, 
so he has a very particular style that he's trying to master where he um you you want to feel confident in his stuff using his pitches in any count that he whatever counts to just be able to induce weak contact and get swings and misses um but there's the questions about the durability and about the commands this year he's also out of minor league options so for, for whatever reason he really struggles um then you're in this tricky situation where you wonder do you want to like just push him to the bullpen that is that's the possibility for his future if he can't throw enough strikes as he could just be a late ending reliever uh but the upside is um if not an ace then somebody that is near the top of your rotation um because of the quality of his stuff and how difficult he is to square up so this was an offseason where the marlins were very open-minded to moving any of their starting pitchers except for sandy they've never been open to moving sandy but anybody else so they were they were certainly open to it there was a scenario where they could have traded him um would not have been totally shocking to me if they had done so because the stock is relatively high right now given how we pitched one healthy last year um so that's that's kind of where he stands, where he, he's an interesting pitcher, but he's not totally indispensable for the Marlins. So uh, this year, at this point, he's pretty much locked in to the team, and uh, he's going to get an opportunity to actually prove that he can stay healthy a whole year. And I'll be fascinated to see that because, unfortunately, he has not been able to do that to this point in his career. Do you think that if he does have a, a good season and he's healthy all year, that the Marlins would be willing to extend him or any of the other young pitchers or young young stars that the Marlins have? Um, I know in your division, you've got the Braves who have made a very, uh, very awesome template of how to trap these young stars long term. And I'm wondering if the Marlins maybe are going to follow suit with that. I the short answer is I don't think it's going to look the same way. Um, it, it's so efficient what the Braves are doing, and um, I, I think that is a decent model to go after. With the Marlins, they seem to be extremely confident in their ability to continue churning new homegrown starting pitchers. So they paid Sandy Alcantara because they paid him at a price that they simply, if he was willing to take what he did, which was five years and 56 million with a club option for a sixth year at the end of that, all the way through his early thirties, it was such a good deal that they were able to reach an agreement and that has aged beautifully in the year plus since it happens. But aside from that, this is a team operating on relatively low payroll that whatever money they spend um, for the most part, I think is going to be on the position player side when they have the main extension candidate that Marlins fans want is Jazz Chisholm Jr. Uh, that's a very complicated one that we may talk through a little bit. Because they have had this recent success on the starting pitching side, continuing to bring up one or two or three interesting rotation candidates every year from their system, uh, I'll just believe it when I see it when it comes to them paying a second starter the way that they did Sandy. I feel like they they trust that part of their operation and – Whatever financial flexibility they have, they're going to use it to just other parts of their roster. Um, if there is one starting pitcher that maybe could be an extension candidate, the one I look at is Jesus Lazardo. He, even more so than Cabrera, um, I thought he was, you could argue that he was actually their best ending printing pitcher late last year, even better than Sandy was in August and September. Uh, he has the same durability issues, which is kind of why, from his perspective, he might be really open to getting security locked in right now. He still has four years of control remaining. And he's also, 
uh, he, I, I should get this right. He used to be a Scott Boris client and he changed agencies a few years ago. So, all, so that whenever that happens, you feel more confident about being able to extend somebody and not them pushing for free. 100%. Agency. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> they, they made, they made a big trade to get him just in 2021 for Starling Marte. So they invested that in him. And to this point, it looks like a really savvy deal. And the way to, for, to really capitalize on it is to keep him through his prime years. Um, so he is one guy at this particular stage of his career. This is prime extension season, counting down to opening day, where um, I feel like they could get him for even a lower price tag than they got Sandy Alcantara for because of his durability questions and his short track record. Like that's something I could see potentially coming together, but overall, I, I just think they're going to save their money on the position player side. Um, the complications of Jazz Chisholm situation, um, potentially Luis Arias, who they just acquired and is a very established player, but still just 25 years old at this moment. Um, that's one that jumps out to me as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is you need to have good players in order to think about long-term extensions for them. And there just have not been a whole lot of these good, these young players that prove to be good right away and prove to be extension worthy. So, yeah, I would uh, I would lean towards no extensions happening this right now heading into opening day. But they do have, you know, a few candidates in there that, that I think they should be thinking about at least. Uh, Eli, while while we're on the topic a little bit about these young talents and and all that, with uh, Luis Arias coming in, of course, he was last year's American League batting champion, and he he brings a big stick to the ballpark. Um, what do you think about the dynamic of moving Jazz off of his position and throwing him in the outfield? And and is that going to create any tension, or, or are these guys going to be professionals and just go about their business? And Jazz is going to be a top center fielder in the league. Well, Jazz thinks he'll be a top center fielder in the league. <laughs> the, the, top the five, best, I think he said, right? Yes. Yeah. The best tool that Jazz has is his confidence, just relentless confidence until until it's taken away from him. And uh, the very first impression that we've had of him in center field was not great. He made his debut there this past Sunday. And he only had like one play to make out there and he just misread a fly ball. Like um, he got a slow start to it. He couldn't make up ground in time and took what could have been a relatively routine out into a single. He made excuses for it after the fact in the clubhouse. Like he is, um, they put him in center field by default because there are so few like real, maybe not, elite isn't the threshold, but they wanted a steady center fielder that they couldn't develop themselves. And they were unable to acquire that at the price that they wanted. The name they've been circling, they've been trying to trade for Brian Reynolds for a while from the Pirates, but he has not been made of it. Yeah, <laughs> despite Brian Reynolds' wishes to be on the market, he, he is not seemingly close to getting moved at all. And in free agency, uh, I mean, we saw this past offseason, Brandon Nimmo get 160-something million dollars. They weren't going to go into that territory. Moving him to center was just a reaction to the reality that they don't have better solutions internally. There was nobody available on the market at a price that they were comfortable with, and they're giving it a, a shot. Uh, personally, entering this year, I was wondering whether they would give him a shot at shortstop because he was developed as a shortstop he, for a while um, until what, 2021, like he seems that seems like it would be his position eventually. 
And for whatever reason, his defensive performance has been a lot better at second base than at short. Um, like this is a possibility. It's been in my head for uh, dating back to when they traded Starling Marte. Ever since then, they've just been, they've had no idea who their center fielder would be. Like they had to consider everything. Um, but I mean, Jazz just does not have any experience whatsoever as an outfielder and especially as a center fielder, no experience at all. He's just learning this from scratch. So even though he has some of the tools you associate with that position, uh, I think realistically, if you, you want to be reasonable with expectations for this year, he's probably going to be a below average defender out there. And the hope is that his offense compensates for that. For this team overall, they're making a big bet that their offensive improvements, uh, a combination of the new acquisitions and guys just staying healthy who were not healthy last year, which includes Jazz, I think the, the off, offense is going to easily offset the defensive struggles. And uh, I think that's a pretty fair bet. It's just, it's not perfect. This is, um, the goal was obviously to build a complete team to have these players in their natural positions. And uh, th- this is the compromise that they're facing just because of their own self-imposed payroll restrictions and just um, the, the players that were available to them at the time this past off season. So it, it is a weird, weirdly constructed team, um, but should be a better team than at least what we saw in 2022. When you hear like, really big market teams like like the Red Sox um, and their fans complaining that they're not spending enough money on personnel. Um, how, how, how do you feel about that as a Marlins fan? Yeah, it is the uh, – you're just used to this with the Marlins because no matter what owner they have had in all their history, with, with few exceptions, with the year – They've had the, the same of, as the Red Sox. John Henry was the owner of the Marlins at one point. He was for – yeah, for three or four years in there during the turn of the century. They had John Henry there before it was Wayne Huizenga, then it was Jeffrey Loria, and now the head man is Bruce Sherman. Um, and throughout it all, um, because of limited attendance, and that's a bigger conversation about what they could do to actually have sustainable attendance. Like that's a piece of their revenue pie that is a lot smaller than basically any other major league team. Their, their TV contract also is on the very bottom end. Their, their revenue is, is low. And I think it is fair to say that, that with that comes some limitations in what they can do. That being said, it's a chicken and egg situation where you wonder if they did put together a good team all of a sudden, whether the the fan response to that good team would put in the revenue that they need to sustain that team. Because the revenue is not there because the team isn't good. The team's made the playoffs once in the last 19 years, and that one time was one that you guys even could have easily forgotten about because it was the COVID season. So because of that, there's just been – They've given so little for their consumers to actually believe in and want to invest in, and and that's what they're getting in return. They're getting very little revenue coming in from those those uh, those consumers. Uh, that being said, they do receive a big revenue sharing check every single year, um, and because of that, it should be able to buoy up their their payroll to a certain level regardless of how they do locally this this is the part of being part of major league baseball this is a big perk of being in a small market is that you get help from the large market teams Uh, they're creeping towards a spot where it's more representative of what they should be spending this year is the highest that the payroll has been since well since loria since 20 i think it was 
depending on how you slice the numbers, either the highest since 2017 or the highest since 20, 2012. Uh, it's, um, it's been trending in the right direction, but that thing, it, it's, it's a tricky spot because the little things that they're supposed to be doing well as a small market team to develop their own players, that's what hasn't really gone as efficiently as it needs to. And uh, honestly, even some of their free agent decisions, even when they have made the steps to invest in free agency, their track record on that is pretty poor, dating back the last few years as well. Uh, so when you have a combination of limited resources and questionable decision making, then you have a team that is going to be pretty bad. It's, it's that simple. I, I think a team that you could look at and see that spending money definitely will bring the fans in is a, is a team that's kind of similar to the Marlins in that they've been kind of an afterthought in their own division for years, and that's the San Diego Padres. Uh, you know, you've got the the Giants that won multiple World Series since 2000. The Dodgers have pretty much owned that division for the past decade and a half. But now all of a sudden, the Padres have spent a lot of money and continue to spend a lot of money every day, it seems like. And I lived in San Diego for about four years, and they were literally giving tickets away to try to get people into the into the stadium. And even at that price, people were like, nah, I've got better things to do. Um, now you look at it and they have tens and hundreds of thousands of people that are trying to show up just for a fan fest. Like it's, it's a completely different shift of culture. So I think if the, if the Miami Marlins were to start investing and spending big, maybe if they would have kept guys like Giancarlo Stanton, like um, Christian Yelich and paid them big bucks and then brought in other free agents, we might be talking a completely different situation now. Yeah, they were in a tricky situation when this ownership transition happened between yeah, 2017 and 2018, true. where by any measure, the farm system at that point was the worst in baseball. They'd done such an awful job at adding depth behind those star players that it was just difficult to see what the window was for them to actually put together a well-rounded competitive team. And as, as everybody knows, they pulled off the band-aid in one big move and uh, it, it made the team pretty miserable for the first couple of years immediately after that. And when you look at the Padres, the Padres entering into this area era of prosperity, they had maybe the very best farm system in baseball just a few years ago. And so they used that to make some trades. They had a couple of those guys obviously hit at the major league level, such as Fernando Tatis. And because of that, they were um, that gave them the confidence to add those additional luxury pieces on top of what they already had. And, and so with this Marlon scene, um, they are actually, when I get finished talking to you guys, I'm recording a, a podcast with MLB pipelines, Jim Callis to go through the Marlins farm system. And uh, at the moment, because of some trades they've made some prospect graduations, some bad luck, like their farm system right now is not great. After all that rebuilding, uh, they, they're not in a much better position organizationally than they were before they got started as well. So you just you need to do a lot of things well to succeed when you have uh, limited resources. And, and to this point, you know, aside from developing starting pitching, that very particular thing, um, there's just not a whole lot of strength of this organization right now. And that's it's hard to keep pace with, especially in this division behind the Mets, the Phillies and the Braves, 
um, a couple of those teams, really all those teams are spending more money than they ever had before. They were already big market teams and now um, sensing their own windows, spending a lot. So the Marlins are making this very interesting decision to want to compete now and when they get better, despite the obstacles that are right in front of them. So you mentioned, though, um, I'm kind of glad that you brought this up because I um, I do a lot of stuff for Sox prospects. And I look at who I believe is the top prospect for the Marlins right now, uh, Yuri Perez. Mm-hmm. Um, what what What's the timeline on him? When is he expected to, because he's still a teenager, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. When is he expected to be able to help the team? This year, by the middle of this year, he uh, is almost certainly going to be ready. He is turning 20 years old in the middle of April, and he is he's in big league camp right now. He is, um, I mean, it's, it's a pretty short list, but he's going to prove to be one of their more successful international signings ever. Like he has, he was just signed in 2019. And since then, he's kept growing and growing and growing. He's uh, he's listed at six eight. He's really about six foot nine at this point, and he just has very uncommon commands for somebody at that size. He continues to get stronger. He's an extremely he's about as good a starting pitching prospect as you can get. I mean, across baseball, it's either Yuri or it's Grayson Rodriguez or it's Andrew Painter, and that's that's pretty much the short list. He is he has ace potential. He is uh, he's right there whenever they need him. He's uh, as currently stands, um, they have five and really six starting pitchers that they feel pretty good about at the major league level. Um, as as the reality is in baseball this year, you need more than that to get through a season. And whenever an injury or two comes up, he is going to be near the top of the list. So he's come off a, a season at double A um, where he missed a little bit of time due to injury. The, the question with him is exactly how many innings you can expect this upcoming year because he's never come close to pitching a full season yet. Even last year, including the playoffs, he pitched fewer than 80 innings. So you're not going to go from 80 to a full year as a starter. Um, there'll be some sort of limitations on him. I do think you're going to see him at some point um, because his stuff is almost as good as anybody's already. He just extremely well-rounded for a player that when they signed him initially, wasn't even at the very top of their international class. It's been a very pleasant surprise. It's been just a great story of work ethic as well to get to where he is right now. He's, he's unquestionably the, their number one prospect. And the problem is there's, there's a little bit of a gap when you go from him to everybody else. One of our commenters, uh, regular listener says, we'll take him straight up swap for Nick York. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the number two prospect? That it depends on a person's opinion. So, for example, on MLB Pipeline, they have Jacob Berry as their number two prospect. He was their top draft pick this past year. Um, other candidates for that would be Max Meyer, who briefly made his debut last year, but is now recovering from Tommy John surgery. He's going to be out all this upcoming season. And they have a couple other pitchers that I really like in that same conversation, Jake Eater and Dax Fulton. Both of those guys who haven't debuted yet, but they're in, well, Dax Fulton is in major league camp and he's going to be pitching against the Red Sox right after we finish recording this as well. Uh, once you get past Yuri, you know, there, there are questions about basically all those guys, whether it's due to injury or some questions about the depth of their pitch mix. Um, if I had to pick one, I'd probably consider Jake Eater to be the number two guy. He was amazing at double A in 2021, but then he went under Tommy John surgery. So he missed all this past year. 
he's going to have his own innings restrictions this upcoming season. But uh, I'm extremely confident in him. At least he has the makings of being a mid-rotation starter at the very least with the, his fastball, breaking ball combination. Both of those pitches are plus pitches with the way that he can command them wherever he wants, especially against fellow lefties. So they have like they have other good prospects as well. The problem is it's also very pitching heavy. So when you wonder when they're, where they're going to get these long-term everyday position players from, um, uh, Jacob Berry is one of the only candidates. Unfortunately, he's realistically profiles as a first base DH type moving forward. So he's all the way at the bottom of the defensive spectrum, the kind of player that is frankly easiest for a team like the Marlins to afford in free agency on a series of one-year deals. They have, um, they have a bunch of middle infielders just brewing in the system. Um, I'm the most, maybe the most polarizing name is Khalil Watson. Khalil Watson was considered one of the very best prospects in the 2021 draft. He fell all the way to the 16th overall pick and people couldn't really figure out why. And the Marlins found out why last year it was a, a combination of swing and miss concerns, but really more so with the maturity level that he has. I'll just put it politely that way with the way that he interacted with coaches, with teammates, with his own struggles um, and like just not being very self-aware of what he needed to do to improve he had a, a brief uh, timeout, you could say politely, an unofficial suspension away from the team for a few weeks during the middle of the season this past year. Um, immensely talented player um, who, on a tools level, like he, he projects as a player that could be a really impactful middle infielder, um, especially offensively, uh, for the power that he hits from and the athleticism that he has. Uh, but to this point, he's still years away, even if he like rightens the ship at this point. So um, it's just not a, not a great spot. And so they've taken some steps this off season to at the highest levels of the farm system to try to change some of their methodologies. The, the guy that was basically overseeing the farm system for most of the rebuild was a man named Gary Denbo. And he was a close friend of Derek Jeter. He was a very unpopular guy, despite a long history in the game. And they have steadily phased him out of the organization. He was fired last year. And they're going to try to just add in a lot of different philosophies um, that they didn't have before that they're hopeful will get, especially on the hitting side, will get these players closer to the potential that they're supposed to reach. Yeah, see what's, I mean, it seems like they've really had some struggles with that. So it makes sense to try something new at this point. Uh, speaking of something, though, that isn't, uh, isn't really new, uh, how, how's Sixto Sanchez doing? Any, any update on, uh, on him? Well, there, I guess you could say there are. There's an update. Um, I, in terms of relevant news, I wouldn't say so. He just threw from a mound on Monday for the first time during spring training. He's on the Marlins 40 man roster. Just from background for people, he hurt himself two years ago in spring training, right at the end of spring training, um, his shoulder. And it has um, his stuff has not come back. It's been two years. He went, underwent an additional surgery this past October. And the stuff is just not back. This is a player that was averaging 98, 99 miles per hour, averaging that on his fastball as a starting pitcher. I was extremely high on him from a talent perspective. And, but the shoulders are so complicated. And to this point, the stuff simply is not back. 
where they can't expect anything of him, at least for this year. You know, you can't say that his career is over at age 24. It's just the uh, the history of this is really troubling. When I looked at the history of other pitchers that go back-to-back years without pitching in any competitive games at all, and what comes to them afterwards, uh, even in a best-case scenario, maybe you get a good reliever for a few years on the other ends of those shoulder issues. And with him, I, it's just not even realistic to put that expectation on him right now because the stuff isn't back. He's, he's throwing harder than I could, but not not a whole lot harder at this point. It it's unfortunate. Um, in hindsight, there's a lot of criticism about his work ethic. He's somebody that was um, perpetually very overweight during his minor league career. And finally, this spring, he showed up in the best shape of his life. Usually you, you think about that with players that are actually available to play and uh, have expectations. He showed up in the best shape of his life, despite, you know, this big question about his availability. Um, so we, he's lost the weight. But that, was, that wasn't really what was holding him back. What was holding him back was uh, the shoulder. And so people in hindsight are going to question, maybe if he took better care of his overall nutrition and well-being, he wouldn't have hurt his shoulder in this way. Um, the reality is he did, and it doesn't seem that they've gotten it right yet with trying to rehab him. So they had the option. He still has a minor league option left. He's going to start this season on the injured list. Um, this is going to be pretty clearly a pivotal season for him to get it to get to, to see if there's anything there for them to do something with. Otherwise, you're in this situation that's on, honestly not that different from a J.J. Plade situation where a former top prospect has just very little value to you or any other organization. It, it's a really unfortunate one, even though he seems to have a great attitude about it right now. Um, expectations, at least for 2023, are just not there. Can't depend on him. Well, if he ends up in uh, AAA, I'll be sure to keep an eye on him for you down there, Eli. Uh, of course, I live in Jacksonville, Florida, and I do go to several Jumbo Shrimp games. And that brings me to a question. Uh, going back to Yuri Perez, is he expected to start at AA, or will he start at AAA this year? Oh, he'll start at AAA for sure. You will see him whatever opening day is, April, whatever. Uh, he yeah. will be there for the Jumbo Shrimp on, on that day, and he'll be, he'll be waiting for his turn um, a little little things that he'll try to work on while he's down there. But, but he's frankly somebody that could contribute to the rotation right now, if they had an opening for him. So he'll be in triple a just waiting his turn. And most important thing is keeping healthy while he's down there. That's, that's incredible to be 19, 20 years old and on the doorstep of the show. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. He will be, I think he'll be the youngest Marlins major leaguer since potentially Edgar Renteria going all the way back to the nineties. <laughs> Jose Fernandez. No, even Jose Fernandez was a little bit older at the time of his debut. Oh, wow, he was yeah. yeah, he was wow. 20 and um closing in on 21. So if Yuri debuts, I'll have to check the math on this. Certainly during the early portion of the season, it would be um something this franchise has not seen in a while. But the comparisons between him and Jose Fernandez are naturally um very appropriate. This is the type of prospect. This is the type of pitching prospect they have not had since Jose Fernandez. And in some ways you don't want to say that the upside is even higher, but it's, it's kind of in that, that same level. You really could not get more excited about a pitcher than the Marlins are about Yuri. How much did the tragedy of Jose Fernandez um, set back the Marlins? A lot. Yeah, you, there's really no way to dance around that. 
considering where they were in 2016 um, for most of that season, being in playoff position with him in front of their rotation for a team that just from a baseball perspective, the drop off from him to everybody else in the rotation was so massive that from a roster perspective, he was irreplaceable. And I mean, just as important from a sentimental place, he was irreplaceable. He was as a Cuban born player in a community that has so many Cuban fans. He, he connected with people on a level that very few players in the history of the team ever have before. They saw so much of themselves in him, uh, the way that he, I mean, his, his, the way that he played the game as well, um, aside from being Cuban, just being so enthusiastic, relentlessly enthusiastic and being very proud of who he was. Uh, he brought an energy to the game that very few players have on their own and have it genuinely. So he was, he was on his way to being, I don't know if he, maybe he wasn't one of the faces of baseball yet, but he was on his way to being one of the faces of baseball. I mean, it, it's, it's for someone at that stage of his career already showing so much ability and still only being 24 years old when he passed away. Um, it was, yeah, just a complete tragedy um, from a team building perspective, um, kind of just going through the motions the following year. Um, this is something that we've had the former president of the Marlins, David Sampson, on our podcast before earlier this offseason. And he's spoken about this plenty of other times that, I mean, that was a huge impetus on why the team was sold in the first place, why Jeffrey Loria lost kind of his, his passion for owning the franchise is because this was the individual player that he was most attached to. And uh, it, it just leaves a hole where you can't really replace it. And um, they reached a point where they would rather move on than try to clean up the pieces around it. So he's, he's never forgotten. Um, he is, he continues to be the, one of the most popular players that the team has ever had. And to some people, he still, there's, there's nothing but fond memories for what he did during his time with the organization. So, I mean, it was, it was fortunate to have him at all, but um, yeah, there's no doubt that things would look pretty dramatically different if he just had a regular career from this point forward. He'd, He'd still be in the prime of his career. He would still be just 30 years old at this point. So, um, yeah, it is, it's always bitter to, to look back on it, but he, he made so many positive memories in the time that he was part of the team. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to follow that question up, but, um, I do have, I have one more thing to ask before we, uh, before we hit our time limit, just with the, Red Sox about to play the Marlins about 40 minutes from now. Um, what are what are the top three storylines for the Marlins? I think number one would have to be the team defense. Uh, we touched on it already with Jazz moving to uh, center field. But uh, how, how they're handling that defense with Jazz at center, with um, Gene Segura playing out of position at third base, with Luis Arias being like treated as the everyday second baseman when he should really be sliding down the defensive spectrum. And some of the other concerns that even the players they had, Joey, Joey Wendell being their everyday shortstop, the, there's so many positions that are impacted by this that you could see, you know, worst case scenario going pretty badly. And then on the other side, I touched on the idea that, you know, hopefully there's enough offense 
to outweigh any of the issues that those guys have. So it's certainly the defensive alignment and in particular jazz in center field. If everybody can, um, performance is important. Yeah. The most important thing, I think you touched on this was just everybody buying in to the positions that they're playing and um, getting along and kind of rooting for each other's success. So as long as that doesn't create extra tension, that's pretty important too. Yeah. So you start with the defense. Um, I guess somewhere in the top three, you'd have to say Yuri Perez and um, that storyline is to when he reaches the big leagues, uh, even for a team that has so much starting depth, it is, um, it's tantalizing to see somebody with his type of potential to be, uh, you, you don't want to say like a Cy Young caliber when they already have a, a Cy Young pitcher on staff, but there, there's a strong personal connection between Yuri and Sandy. Like Sandy is doing everything in his power to make sure this kid follows in his footsteps. So whether it is, it could just be five starts during the year. It could be 10 starts. It could be 15. It probably won't be much more than 15. But whenever he arrives and seeing how he performs once he does arrive, because there are essentially a wide variety of things the, the organization can do from here if he immediately turns into being a top-of-the-rotation type of player. Um, if I had to pick a third one, I guess you could go the manager route. We've not touched on the manager change. Skip Schumacher. Skip. This is his um his first time managing, uh, one of the youngest managers in all baseball. He wins every press conference that he has. He says all the right things, and from everything you could see, he deals with the players in a way that's a lot different than Don Mattingly did previously as Marlins manager. So it's. So the storyline would be him, but also his entire staff, because it is a mostly new staff. They brought back the pitching coach, they brought back the bullpen coach, and then everybody else is brand new. So in particular, him and his hitting coach, Brant Brown, who came over from the Dodgers. This is a team that, by all accounts, just didn't do a whole lot to make their hitters better once they reached the big leagues. And Brant Brown brings a much different approach, a more hands-on approach than they had with their previous coaches staff. Um this will be an interesting test to see exactly how much of a difference, a different message can get, uh, a different clubhouse culture can bring. It's it's always impossible to put your finger on that impact. Um, like sometimes these storylines are forgotten as a series as the season goes on, and all the players just play up to their usual talent level. Uh, but this is something that, in hindsight, you know, could end up being a huge factor to, to the team if you see certain players that are uh, exceeding expectations. Looks like Ed's had some technical difficulties, but uh, my last question, Eli, uh, and thank you for all of your answers and your time coming on here today. But uh, what what's your projection? What do you think the Miami Marlins will do this year? Where will they finish in the NL East? And will the change in schedule benefit the club? They have fallen below my expectations the past couple of years. Uh, I do think they'll be improved from where they were this past season. To answer your questions in reverse order, I think the scheduling change does help them quite a bit to take away six games apiece against the Mets, yeah. Phillies, and Braves. Um, and said most of those are turning into interleague games. I, I think that will marginally help them a little bit. And they have built like an offensive team. That The main issue last year is they had just some almost historic offensive slumps there was one particular scoreless streak during the middle of the year where it was over the course of four or five games being shut out that I don't think you're going to have any of those ruts like that when you have more uh, players that hits a contact, that work deep counts. Like it's a more well-rounded offense, a more balanced offense. Um, even if it's not a great offense, I think they're going to be 
more consistent from that standpoint to, to stay afloat. So I'm not going to guarantee that they're actually in the race all the way to the end. Um, but if I had to pick a record projection, I'm just going to pick what I had last year, even though it proved to be under. I'm going to repeat that and say that they pick up seven wins and they go 76 and 86. So that'd be kind of like right around where they were before they started rebuilding, um, which is like the smallest of like small victories to get back to where you were six years ago. It would certainly be better than they have been in uh, recent history. So that number feels um, that's kind of where I'm at right now as we still got to wait for spring training to play out, but I say 76 wins. So I've got one more question and thanks for bearing with me while my, uh, my internet decided to completely flip out. Um, what is your favorite move that Kim Ung has made and what has been your least favorite move that she's made since uh, in her tenure with the Marlins? I'll start with the least favorite. It, it's a really small one that may have gone under the radar for most people, but it was trading Adam Duvall at the 2021 trade deadline to the Braves for catcher Alex Jackson. Um, from the Braves' perspective, you may know how that played out. kind of became their primary center fielder during the playoffs. He continued to be a great power hitter. And the, the Braves won the World Series. That year. What a gold yeah. glove. Mm-hmm. He won the gold glove, Yeah. Mostly from what he was doing with the Marlins. Like he had an under the radar, very good year for the Marlins doing Adam Duvall things. He still had a year of club control remaining via arbitration. This became a big storyline um, after the trade is like some confusion as to whether he actually had a year of control remaining or not. Like they, there was some confusion about whether he was a rental and why they had to trade him if he wasn't actually a rental. So there was some question in hindsight as to whether the Marlins actually knew that, whether they knew they had an extra year of control or not. Anyway, they flip him for Alex Jackson, who was um, <laughs> he was about as bad as any major league hitter during the second half of 2021. You can look it up. He struck out in half of his plate appearances. That is so hard to do, to strike out 50% of the time. And they got rid of him this past spring, the, well, the following spring, almost immediately. They realized that it's not happening with this guy. That was uh, that was that was pretty ugly, especially because it happened within the division on top of everything yeah. else. And uh, I mean, the favorite move would have to be the Sandy extension. The timing of it was absolutely perfect. Um, and the you, you just seeing all the other starting pitching contracts that have been given out since then really hammers home how much of an insane bargain they were able to get on a pitcher with that kind of upside. And he immediately hits that upside in his first year with that extension into effect. Um, so they've, they've made a whole lot of other trades since then that still need a little more time to play out. Uh, but in the meantime, the importance of not just getting a good deal on Sandy, but just locking up any player for a long-term period for an organization that has had so little continuity for the years. One thing that fans dislike is how much turnover there is. When they have good players, those good players are gone fairly quickly. Uh, so wait to see how long. Sandy actually plays out that contract. You know, history would say he doesn't finish the next five years with the Marlins. Um, but the fact that there's an opportunity for that, he is, you can't ask for anything more of a starting pitcher and it's able to get him at a price where they can actually make some moves around him to give this team a chance to be competitive. That was so critical. So you need to applaud her for that extension. Awesome. Well, I think that's, that's going to be it for me. How about you, Brandon? I'm good. Yeah. I appreciate your time, Eli. It's been a, a lot of fun just talking about Marlins baseball.
yeah. yeah, it's it's been more fun than it had been the past few years. I'm just grateful. The the model that this team has is that we're trying for once. They're, they're finally trying because you can't honestly say that they were trying the previous half decade, and uh, they're they're finally sending a different message. Whether it will work is a totally different topic, but uh, that's something that I appreciate. That I know our our fans really appreciate that there is some genuine effort to make to compete. So I'm glad to talk about it with you guys right here. And where can people follow you? Uh, what, uh, what, what's your uh, Twitter handle? What site are you on? Well, well, you can find me on Twitter at real Eli E L Y, but I mean, more easily could just find me wherever you put in fish stripes anywhere. Uh, I, I I'm in charge of all the social media accounts of the website, fishstripes.com. Um, yeah, that, that's probably the easiest way to find me is just look for fish stripes wherever you are, whether it's, on online, on social media, on podcasting, where we do plenty of that ourselves. Um, yeah, you can find me attached to everything we do over there. Yeah, and I can tell you it's one hell of a product that they have. Um, the Fish Stripes was the first thing anybody recommended to me when I was asking about what podcasters they'd want to see uh, have on the show, what person, what Twitter personalities or whatever for a different team. And yeah, no, you guys did not disappoint. So uh, thanks so much. We'll be back next um, in this series with the Braves. Uh, not a hundred percent sure when that's going to be released, but thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.